2: on. And welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 129. Bienvenidos, bitches, and bruiti Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we do not hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, white dudes. What? No, there are <laughs> many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. <laughs> I just was thinking about that lady at CrimeCon. Are y'all a podcast about guys serial killers (laughs) we do them too now we will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist
1: Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social
2: media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, you can check it out for the different ways that you can
1: support the show. So, who? Are we talking about today, Beth? Today, we're talking about Reverend DeVernon Legrand, who headed St. John's Pentecostal Church of Our Lord in Brooklyn.
2: Okay, (laughs) Brooklyn, we go hard. (laughs)
1: Okay. He recruited many teenage quote-unquote nuns who solicited money for his church. He also sexually abused the nuns and murdered a bunch of people, including Uh two wives, two teenage girls, and two men. All right. Well, uh, before we get into it, How you doing? I'm doing good. So it was a busy week. It's been real busy at work. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, uh, just trying to, you know, tread water. Yeah, keep my head above water. Yeah. Same
2: over here. Uh, I had to take a couple days off. And you know when you take time off, you're like, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, this, and that. And then and you, you don't. don't do any of it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know that
1: very well. <laughs> that's what
2: happened. Um, but it was an excellent weekend. My mom was in town. Uh, I nice. talked about this before. My mom is 100% garifuna. Uh, and we did a bunch of um, fun family stuff, including, um, so I I'm a Zumba instructor and uh, um, I did, did a Zumba class with my mom where we did punta dance. And oh, punta nice. is a Garifuna style dance. So that was fun. Sweet. And she, yeah, she brought back um, from her travels, a shirt that says like uh, straight out of Griga. Uh Griga is a, is a, is a town where there's a lot of Garifuna people where my mom is from. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, a shirt that said um, like mixed with Belizean and Belizeans on the front. And there's all these like Belizean words and stuff. So it's nice. Uh, uh, she, she, She brought back merch, and then the conversation came up. What about my podcast merch, Mom? She (laughs) told me at one point she bought a mug. Lies. She didn't... She she did not buy a mug. She says she forgot to hit checkout. Well, mom, you are being exposed today on the show. What uh, 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 one another Garifuna word is negge for bullshit, and this is pure negge, mom. So anyway, but other than that, it was a great weekend. Uh, and awesome. uh, Yeah, happy to be. We don't usually record on Sunday, so no. um, yeah, big fun. Um we are. Um, here we are. Let's uh, mosey on over to to the the post office here and get into some listen our letters
1: Hello angels <laughs> Hello you. angels So, we got a message on our website. It was on our episode on uh, Eugene Britt, and the person who wrote it is named Hearst. Yeah. And they said uh, about the picture that we posted of Eugene Britt, they said, That's not Eugene Britt. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, Britt is one of the many black serials who killed white children whose photo is not allowed to appear in any form of media. He only exists in words. And I don't know about that, but. (laughs) (laughs) Just wanted to say thank you for bringing this to our attention. Um, Also wanted to bring up an interesting point. Because the news is racist. The images and facts published are not always accurate. And we do exhaustive uh, research. When and
2: we say we, we mean Beth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we're proud of that. But uh, we did post a photo of uh, Brit, who we thought was Brit, because it showed up in Google Images as Eug- Eugene Britt. And-, mm-hmm. and it's not. right. And uh, so I did a lot of Googling after we got this message. Could not find a, a picture of Eugene Brit. So right. the photos that come up as Eugene Victor Brit are this guy, mm-hmm. other black serial killers like Darren Dion Van and Alton Coleman and All uh, people
2: who we've covered before. So yeah. when he when when we got this message and I, I was I googled, I was like, oh, my gosh. This is all
1: wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if any of you have a photo of Brit, please uh, send it on over to us. Um, other than that, we don't we don't have one. So,
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So and, you know, we're always learning and, and trying to do our best. So, th- right. again, thank you for pointing this out. Yes. And, thank uh, you. Yeah,
1: what else is in that mailbag? We got an Instagram message from May Suasion. Oh, okay. and they said just finished today's podcast it was great per usual (laughs) thank you and they said i felt triggered a little bit hearing a story based in new zealand i experienced the worst racism in new zealand they're right there with the united states (laughs) i had a work visa and after being there for a month i cried and called my mom every day so she could help me leave early yeah that's that sucks yeah So um, I guess there is a lot of racism in New Zealand more than than I knew. More than, yeah, any of us realize. So that
2: that uh, episode researching it uh, was illuminating for us. Yeah. Um,
1: So it was awesome there.
2: Yeah, I I know. Right. It's it's the promised land. It's the land of milk and honey. Even black, a lot of black people. In America, I think Americans in general. I, I think of Sonia Renee Taylor, the black activist who wrote uh, "Your Body Is Not a- an Apology." She was like, "Fuck America, I'm going to New Zealand," and just because she was trying to get rid of, get away from white supremacy. But right. Somebody should have her listen to this to Fruit Loops because it turns out it's, it's a lot there true. too. Yeah, it's it's it's, <laughs> it's a global issue. Um, yes. So, hip hop air Enough. <laughs> Would you believe it, girls? <laughs> uh, so t- shout out to Hearst. Hip hop airhorns to you, hip hop airhorns to May Suaizon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. Yes, and we got some um some love in the form of monetary payments and support. Thank from, you very uh, much. Thank you yes. all very much. Brandy <laughs> L, Marcus, Marcus, and Carrie E. Here uh, uh, Airhorns for y'all. So uh, this is for brandy. Oh brandy, Hey, Oh brandy, hey, Who helped the pot? Who helped the pot? Help frule's pot? Who helped the pot? Help fruaf' pod! brandy save the day oh brandy (laughs) hey she taught me how oh she taught me how to part to part to (laughs) Sorry about that. That was a little off. <laughs> My choir teacher would be ashamed. But hip hop air horns nonetheless. Yeah, thank you, Brandy. <laughs> okay, Carrie E, this is for you. Carrie E gave us the most handsome donation we've received to date. Yes. And we are so grateful. Actually, yes. um, I was gonna talk to you about this, Beth. There was the um, somebody asked on Twitter, are you guys gonna not enter into win best BIPOC True Crime Show on these awards? But it's like $20 to enter. And I was thinking, oh, we could we use Carrie carry donation. Yeah. So thank you, yes, Carrie e. thank you. Here is your tune. Just like Carrie. I got the Carrie. Turn on some Carrie. Carrie is the soul of the pod. Carrie makes a happy pod. Get down, get down, get funky. Carrie makes the clouds roll by baby. Carrie makes me want to sing. Doobie, doobie, oh, Carrie (laughs) is a joy to bring. Hey, Carrie is my heart and soul, more precious than gold. (laughs) And that is for you, Carrie. Now, Marcus, the best fruity in the whole rap game, Marcus. (laughs) This is for you. He said, oh, he wanted 90s R&B. And this, this is what I got. Oh, boy, I feel like I'm going to destroy this. (laughs) Not in a good way. Here we go. Okay, so. Oh, when you post stories every night, fucked up shit and news to crime, (laughs) I get kind of hectic inside. Oh, Marcus, I'm so into you. Fruit Loops loves you. Yes, we do. Facebook group is lit all the time, but it's just a we in heaven. With Marcus, I love you, Marcus. There's no beginning and there is no end. Feels like we're dreaming, but we're crime sleuth Okay. Everybody. I read that one. Woo! Thank you, everybody. Brandy yeah, L., Marcus M., Carrie E. Uh, couldn't do this show without y'all. So <laughs> we're going to take a quick break and get into the story when we come back.
0: American Vigilante. Now.
1: Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, Right. And we're back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Today, we're talking about Reverend DeVernon Doc Legrand, who procured women and girls to hustle the streets dressed as nuns. And he also sexually abused them. Mm. Over a period of two decades, 20 or so people vanished from the Legrand household and were never seen again.
2: 20 years is a long time to uh, have like a body count of a trail of bodies and nobody uh do anything take note but we know why that is yes. anyway uh, now we're going to get into some stats uh, brrr. Here we go. Now, LeGrand was born in 1924 in the Jim Crow South in Larenburg, North Carolina. North Karkalaka, as I like to say. Uh, (laughs) He has several AKAs. DeVernon, a.k.a. the Reverend, a.k.a. Bishop, a.k.a. Doc. Now, he was a rapist, child abuser, self-proclaimed bishop. Usually you have to get appointed bishop um, (laughs) by a a church organization. You can't just decide I'm going to be a bishop. But anyway, he uh, did. (laughs) He did. He did that. Uh, And head of the St. John's Pentecostal Church of Our Lord and a serial killer. He had 12-plus victims, but given the time, the location, and the type of victims, uh, mostly BIPOC black people, uh, his actual body count is unknown. His crimes took place from 1963 to 1976 in New York, and he was arrested in May of 1976. His victims were mostly women, who were his wives and members of his church, and Beth said he also had some male victims. Uh, His M.O. was shooting and beating. He was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison, and he did. He died there in 2006. (laughs) Uh, his victims now we don't know all their names so rest in power kings queens and to all the victims of the Legrand crime family but the names we do know are Gladys Stewart 18 her sister Yvonne Rivera 16 and Soros was approximately 30 Ernestine Timmons was 33 Elizabeth Brown was 15 Jeffrey Miranda was 25 Howard Tippin's was approximately 50. So now we're going to get into the setting. Take us
1: there, Beth. Well, let's talk about religion. (laughs) Give me that old time religion. Specifically, the holiness movement. The movement is defined by its emphasis on the doctrine of a second work of grace, which is a, quote, transforming interaction with God, unquote, Hmm. leading to Christian perfection or, in other words, spiritual maturity. This is separate from and subsequent to the first work of grace, which is new birth or accepting God into your heart, what people now call being born again.
2: And by the way, uh, perfection, this idea of perfectionism and Christianity. Welcome to Culture Corner. Perfectionism is a a white supremacist colonizer Christian thing. I don't think BIPOC, Black and, and Indigenous communities really valued perfection from um, the standpoint that we do.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. We're
2: encouraged to strive for today. Um, So just wanted to point that out. Anyway, the Holiness Movement dates back to 1784 when John Wellesley founded Methodism after the Anglican Church abandoned its American believers during the American Revolution, they do that for from the outset the model of colonial american methodism was quote to spread christian holiness over these lands end quote but to be fair nobody asked for it
1: nobody asked for it but uh they got it yeah okay In 1843, about a dozen ministers withdrew from the Methodist Episcopal Church to found the Wesleyan Methodist Church of America. Julia A.J. Foot, a Black woman, was ordained as the first woman deacon in the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church and the Ooh. second to be ordained as an elder. And she was a leader in the Wesleyan Holiness Movement in the 1800s.
2: Sizable numbers of Protestants from the rural areas of the Midwest and South joined the Holiness Movement. They were very active. in works of social justice, including various compassionate
1: ministries, interracial work, temperance,
2: and women's suffrage. From
1: 1850 onwards, it produced a number of women who ministered as evangelists, Bible study leaders, and even a bishop. Whoa! Yeah, such examples inspired other women, like the Salvation Army's Catherine Booth and Frances Willard of the Women's Christian Temperance Union.
2: In the early to mid-20th century, tent revival, Lord, sinner revival uh tent revival services now i don't know if you've have you ever been to revival because no. it's a party it's a holy ghost party it's I've a lot seen of fun
1: videos but i've no i that's not my bag
2: it gets <laughs> it's crazy. not my bag, baby well wasn't mine either <laughs> i was just forced to go by my parents but uh it i mean you know Considering the alternative, I mean, and by alternative, I mean white worship spaces that are super boring. Very boring, Uh, yeah. uh, Tent revival is pretty lit. Uh, So tent revival services conducted by traveling evangelist ministers were a common sight
1: and a summer tradition, especially in the South. Initially, the practice was pragmatic. In the 1800s, tent revivals, or camp meetings, brought religion to frontier areas in states that lacked established churches. By the 1920s, the tradition had become institutionalized and served two purposes, to stir up the faithful and to attract new congregants.
2: Um, I was thinking about religion today and um, churches and congregations are run by people, human beings, right, who right. are fallible, but also churches are businesses, right? They need yes. to keep the lights on. So you yeah. have to keep, quote unquote, growing the flock yep. um, to keep the money coming. Right. Yeah. Um And so it just it was just an interesting thought I i had about the economy of Christianity. Anyway, it's uh, not here to offend people. Just those are my thoughts. Uh, so of the, some of the preachers were actually just grifters. Others were earnest and affiliated with legitimate religious groups. One of the latter was William J. Seymour, who was a black Pentecostal preacher who sparked the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles, California in 1906.
1: This revival drew large crowds of believers, as well as media coverage that focused on the controversial Pentecostal religious practices, as well as the racially integrated worship services, which everybody was freaked out about.
2: (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, yeah, I mean, during during enslavement, there was a white Bible and there was a black Bible Um, Two different. I mean, the way religion has been been used and sort of catered to um, carry forth individuals goals
1: uh, is kind of fucked up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So the Azusa Street Revival swept through the western portion of the United States. Seymour's leadership
2: of the revival, founding of the Apostolic Faith Movement, and the publication of the Apostolic Faith newspaper launched him into prominence within the Pentecostal movement.
1: Pentecostalism is a form of Christianity that emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit and the direct experience of the presence of God by the believers. Pentecostalism gets its name from the day of of the Pentecost, when, according to the Bible, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus's disciples, leading them to speak in many languages as evidence that they had been baptized in the Spirit. Mm, speaking tongues, catching
2: the Holy Ghost. Yep. Pentecostalism is characterized by several unique doctrines and practices including baptism in the Holy Spirit as a second blessing
1: after salvation, similar to the second work of grace in the holiness movement. Some of the popular Pentecostal churches during this time were the Church of God, the Church of God in Christ, and the Pentecostal Holiness Church. Interestingly, in many Pentecostal churches, women are given the opportunity to serve as preachers, missionaries, and in some cases, as pastors. But they can't wear pants. Uh, don't don't fact check me on that but i think that might be the uh jehovah's witnesses oh but they may not be able to wear pants in the pentecostal church either i don't know
2: i grew up in a pentecostal church and, and uh, couldn't wear pants? That's what I recall. Is Okay,
1: that was the... Wendy, the... you can't wear pants.
2: It's church. <laughs> 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 okay, fine. I'll stay home and play Super Mario Brothers. Now, in Pentecostalism, speaking in tongues is considered a direct evidence of spirit baptism, as is the exercise of all spiritual gifts, or charismata. Charismata are powers or talents considered divinely bestowed. Miraculous gifts, which does include speaking in tongues, but also such things as prophecy and healing thus pentecostalism and its theology spawned the charismatic movement and there's this funny youtube clip of this girl this little white girl in in a pentecostal at like church so church. I don't know if it's exactly and she's like the blessings come in the blessings come in blah, 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 blah. she's speaking tongues on YouTube but oh people God. use it now it's like it's like a meme she's memeified. Oh. but anyway that's what I think of when people are like speaking in tongues the blessings <laughs> come in the blessings come in <laughs>
1: At the beginning of the Charismatic movement, existing Wesleyan holiness denominations started adopting the Pentecostal message, although these Charismatics were more likely than Pentecostals to believe that speaking in tongues was not necessary as evidence of spirit baptism.
2: A lot of the mega churches that exist today are modern Charismatic churches, as are a lot of popular televangelists who then spawn the prosperity gospel, which equates Christian faith with material and particular financial success yeah. it has a long history in american culture with figures like jim and tammy faye baker those eyelashes woo! <laughs> success uh joel olstein joel olstein don't let anybody on my property during a terrible <laughs> flood in texas uh and benny Hinn and joyce meyer those two i'm not familiar with but uh
1: You get the picture. Yeah. It's very popular among charismatic preachers in the evangelical tradition because, uh, you know, it makes them rich. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) And they have an explanation for it. God will bless you with riches if you're a good Christian. (laughs) Blessed And they say bless, bless with like a sh. Bless you. Bless you. Um, honestly, it grosses me out. <laughs> of course it does. Yeah. <laughs> not only does it allow these people to fleece their flock, but it also explains poverty in that uh, you're just not a good enough Christian. Right, right. Do better and give us all your spare money. Uh-huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like they never even read the Bible, which says for the love of money is the root of all evil. And these people just love money. So <laughs>
2: yes, yes, but there are I mean to your, to your point the Bible says that but it also there's there's a, a verse for any point you want to make. Yeah, uh, there is verses in the Bible about giving your money to the church, tithing ten percent. Oh giving, yeah, 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 yeah. All yeah, that. Yeah, there yeah. is. Mm-hmm. But uh... but who's right? Which one is right? Which <laughs> Which one do we go with, God? I don't know. I'm confused.
1: <laughs> well, it does say you should tithe some money to the to the church, but it doesn't say anything about how if you if you tithe money to the church, then you'll be prosperous and have lots of material possessions and it's okay. Fuck if I know
2: I'm a heathen. I'm going (laughs) to hell. I don't know. God is still working on Christian. me.
1: <laughs> but um I, I did study a lot of it because I was not brought up in any religion. So mm-hmm. I was curious. So I yeah. did I read the whole Bible. And, Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Are you and serious? I, <laughs> yeah. Wow. I went to Bible studies. I you know, I did all that stuff, uh just seeking. To see, you know, see what it's all about,
2: front to back. Do you know how long and boring that is? Oh my god, I can't believe it. Is I was wondering I don't today. Remember it's Bible, all of it? Is but... the Bible on Audible? If it, if it was, I, was bet it is. I might, Somewhere. I might consider it. But other than that, nah.
1: <laughs> but anyway, you can see the direct lineage from the Holiness movement through to the Prosperity Gospel.
2: There you go. Now, charismatic preachers and pimps do love money and uh, and, and looking fresh to death. Now, uh, respect the drip, Karen, okay? Uh, now, <laughs> um, so speaking of Reverend, you know, Diverton Legrand, who's our subject today, um, I don't know if you've seen we'll put, saw post pictures picture, of him, yeah. but he's, his hairstyle, and it's not key to the story, but I do think it's, it is interesting to discuss, and so welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. Now, the bishop's hair is is obviously chemically straightened. And I was thinking of that scene in, in the movie Malcolm X. And um, the process is called conch, a hairstyle that Black men from the 1920s to the 1960s, kind of, like it looks like Al Sharpton, kind of hair style um that he rocked and it's again chemically straightened of uh tightly coiled or curled hair using lie. oh um, remember the stuff that burned <laughs> yeah. uh, brad pitt's hand in the movie fight club but beware <laughs> because lie can burn the shit out of your skin and your scalp but if it yeah. burns it's working so
1: <laughs> carry on sorry <laughs> Anyway, that's what was going on with religion during this time period. The place was the Crown Heights District of Brooklyn. Prior to colonization, large portions of what is now called Long Island, and including present-day Brooklyn, were occupied by the Lenape.
2: Crown Heights, for the most part, a lower-middle-class residential area, lies on both sides of the ridge of Eastern Parkway. The
1: section was known as Crow Hill until
2: 1916, when Crown Street
1: was cut through. Crown Heights had begun as a fashionable residential neighborhood. Beginning in the early 1900s, many upper-class residences, including characteristic brownstone buildings, were erected along Eastern Parkway. Away from the parkway were a mixture of lower-middle-class residences.
2: By the way, those brownstones now are not lower middle class. You don't no. you have to be a gazillionaire to, uh, yeah. to even step foot in one?
1: I don't I know. know. Yeah. So,
2: from the early 1920s through the 1960s, Crown Heights was an overwhelmingly white neighborhood and predominantly Jewish. Population changes began in the 1920s with newcomers from Jamaica and the West Indies, as well as African Americans from the South. In
1: 1950, the neighborhood was 89% white. By 1957, Black people made up about 25% of the population in Crown Heights. Following the end of World War II, suburbanization began to rapidly affect Crown Heights and Brooklyn.
2: Black people from the South and immigrants from the Caribbean continued to move there, but white people were moving out. Call that white flight. Uh, In the 1960s, the neighborhood again experienced mass white flight. In 1960, the neighborhood was 70% white, but by 10 years later, 1970, it was 70% black. What a flip!
1: Yeah.
0: revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the
2: French History Podcast today.
0: 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man.
2: So now we're going to get into Legrand's early life.
1: Hit it, Beth. DeVernon Legrand was born in 1924 in Laurenburg, North Carolina, which is located southwest of Fayetteville. At the time, the population was about 3,000. So it was a small town. Mm, when De Vernon was 12, he and his parents moved to Manhattan.
2: Manhattan was not not, not what it is today. No. Uh, so he worked as a chauffeur for mother Robinson until her death I'm not a hundred percent sure but I believe this was a woman by the name of mother Lizzie Woods Robinson an adherent of and the first quote supervisor over the woman's work and quote in the Church of God in Christ which as you might recall was a prominent Pentecostal church
1: he then began working for Daniel e Davis who started up the New day Holy Church of God in 1945 at some point he met and married a woman named Helen Lloyd, and he brought her and his sister, Sarah Maloney, into the fold. His job at the New Day
2: Holy Church of God was to procure women.
1: Wow, that's a weird oh, job to have a in a church.
2: very <laughs> interesting job. He goes from driver to woman procurer. Now, the women would uh, dress up as nuns, sit in front of the department stores and other public places with a metal cup or plate held in the lap and beg for money. Alms for the poor. <laughs>
1: The women were allowed to keep all of the cash except for two dollars and fifty cents a day, which was eventually doubled to five dollars and That was given to the church. Mm. The racket cleared well over a hundred grand a year. <gasps> What? Yeah. Oh yeah. my
2: God. And
1: that translates to about a million dollars today. Wow. Oh my
2: God. I am in the wrong business. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> when do we go get our nun outfits? <laughs> when,
2: yes. You know, so I am a huge fan of Sister Act. Watched it in oh, the yeah, 90s yeah. when I was a kid. And I was like, I know what I'm going to be when I grow up. I'm going to be a nun <laughs> slash lounge singer and that's how I'm going to make my money and I'm going to life is going to be great. I'm going to teach uh, young children how to sing at a nun school. But then I realized you have to be Catholic to be a nun and I am not. So Aww, you dreams were devastated. shattered. Yes, I was. Yes, I was. Never got over it. Now in 1946, LeGrand was arrested for failing to carry his draft card. In 1947, he was arrested for attempted rape and he received a suspended sentence for arranging an abortion.
1: Mm. Wow. On April 18th, 1951, Vivian Stella Sanicola, quote, joined in union, unquote, with Dr. DeVernon Legrand. And this was according to her obituary. We don't know if they were ever legally married, but as far as we know, he was at that time still married to Helen. Whoa. (laughs) Okay. Two-timer. In
2: 1953, DeVernon Legrand, Helen Legrand, Sarah Maloney, and several others of the New Day Holy Church of God were arrested for solicitation and fraud. The women were given prison terms. DeVernon Legrand was acquitted.
1: Mm. LeGrand claimed that he was ordained in 1954 on Long Island and got a doctorate in psychology and theology from some unnamed institute in Newark.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, we didn't have Google back then? So you could have lied about everything. yeah, Yeah,
1: yeah. In 1956, he broke away from Daniel E. Davis and started his own church.
2: Mm. At some point, Legrand married another woman named Ernestine Timmons. He divorced her in 1968 in Mexico. A few months later, he married yet another woman named Kathleen Kennedy, 23, who he'd been charged with raping. She bore him two children and Vivian Sanicola was still around.
1: Yeah, and I don't know where Helen was at this time either. Mm. I'm pretty sure she did not. I mean, she spent some time in jail, but I'm sure she was out by then. Yeah. So I don't know. Mm, He had a lot of women.
2: A lot of women around him. Uh, But uh, that charismata (laughs) put a spell on everybody. So now we're going to get into the timeline. What do you got for us, Beth?
1: By the early 1960s, LeGrand's church was located in a four-story townhouse at 222 Brooklyn Avenue in the Crown Heights District of Brooklyn. It was registered as St. John's Pentecostal Church of Our Lord. DeVernon LeGrand was the leader of the church, quote unquote, family. 222 Brooklyn Avenue becomes a notorious uh, spot yeah. in uh, the
2: town, as we will find. But a sign hanging on the door at the townhouse said that Reverend DeVernon Doc LeGrand was a doctor and physiologist. I have no idea
1: what that is.
2: Metaphysics and theology. Uh, Okay. never heard of those things <laughs> uh, meetings were held every Wednesday evening at 8 30 and he claimed to have healed 300 people <laughs> um now this healing this healing thing is interesting from, a, from again from a Pente- Pentecostal church a, church of God in Christ uh perspective my family. It was heavy, heavy into um, Pentecostal uh, church. And blessed oil, there was bottles of blessed oil everywhere. And blessed wow. oil was really just vegetable oil that somebody prays over. Right. Anyway, it, my, my grandmother swore it had healing, healing properties. properties. Yeah. Yes, And so, um, I had an uncle who was beat up, like beat to a pulp, like People were like, we don't know if he's going to make it. And my grandmother was just like putting blessed oil all over his oh face gosh. and his body. And he was healed. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> so I, don't it worked. Think, <laughs> I guess it worked. Yeah. Uh, But I get this, this idea of healing people, that there are people in the church with healing properties.
1: Powers. Powers yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is,
2: um, uh, I know it sounds like, uh, bullshit to you Beth and I, <laughs> I I I'm just saying there's people out there who really believe it so yeah anyway.
1: yeah uh, so, DeVernon LeGrand's MO was to pick up young girls in his shiny cream colored Cadillac with its own bar and color television. He would make promises to take care of them and then take them back to the townhouse, ply them with drugs and alcohol, and seduce them or sometimes just rape them.
2: Yeah. And this, all the doing drugs yeah. is not in the, uh, is not, part not of something the you see no. in the church quite often. Now, the wine, no. the alcohol fig, look, Jesus did turn water into wine, so party yeah. party on, everybody. Wine's okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it's got so much resveratrol in it. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's interesting, those those things that he used. Now, yeah. he would then force them to panhandle in nuns' clothing. Every morning, Legrand's fake nuns would pile into his Cadillac —those are big cars— and then would drop them off at a different, different locations across the city to beg. One source said that if the women and girls didn't bring home at least $100 a day, they would be beaten. Wow. Now by the 1970s legron was earning about $250,000 a year with
1: his nun scams. Yeah, that's a lot. Mhm. The money that the nuns begged uh was turned directly over to two uh and Legrand, who alone administered all church funds. And all, although these contributions were sought by women dressed in clerical garb, ostensibly for the purpose of supporting church work, relatively little religious activity actually took place within the church. Surprise!
2: Yeah, it's, it sounds like he's more, much more of a pimp than he is a yeah. uh, clergyman. Right Now, uh, instead, Legrand used the money not only to supply food and clothing for his quote-unquote family, but, to pay for expensive gifts, cars, and trips for favored members of the group, and there were rumors of raucous parties ending in fights as drunken men and women spilled out into the streets.
1: <laughs> wow, yeah, that's quite the church,'t isn't it,
2: isn't it? Uh, I need to be saved. Have you heard <laughs> Have you heard the good news?
1: <laughs> the good news is there's yeah. a party tonight that, right. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> LeGrand preached on the first floor, uh, supposedly. Okay. Okay. <laughs> the upper floors of the townhouse housed the people who lived there, which at one time included about 60 to 80 men, women, and children. That's Whoa. a lot. Yeah. Wow. LeGrand himself fathered approximately 60 children oh my by God. several different women associated with the church. Whoa. Of these children, approximately 25 to 30 continued to reside with him.
2: Now that's the highest number I've seen, Beth. Other sources I saw, yeah, 47. That they he fathered? Yes.
1: Yeah, but I'm not I don't remember where I got that from, but all our sources are in the footnotes. So, yeah,
2: so check it out if you want. Um but wow, that is a lot. Now, as you might imagine, conditions were cramped, and it's been described as a warren, which if you don't know, I don't, but now we do, a warren is a group of holes in the ground connected by tunnels that rabbits live in. What? <laughs>
1: The family lived in the tiny bedrooms upstairs. Kids were kept in cages. Jesus! Starved and beaten. In 1965, there were reports that three women had gone missing from the LeGrand house and perhaps had been murdered. Last seen in 1963 were Anne Cerise, Mary Horan, and Lulu King. Police dug up the basement of the house but found nothing. LeGrand was charged with child abuse, though, so that's good.
2: That Yeah, that's something. I mean, kids in cages? Come on yeah, now. That's, that's not cool. No! Now, according to Eugene Jarko, who investigated LeGrand for the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. Quote, they had these tiny little rooms. The kids would stay there with their mothers or just run around everywhere, unquote.
1: Jarkow admitted that he was charmed by LeGrand to a certain degree. Huh. Quote, I liked him and I knew the horrors he committed, the grief he brought on this earth. The guy could have sold me anything. He was very charming. He was like an entertainer, unquote.
2: Uh, I, I like in hearing this story, I imagine him like a like a little Richard or like that kind of charming. Like he yeah. could he could. I don't know if he played any instruments or sang, but I imagine he did and just, woo, he's just just putting on a show. Yeah, a all the
1: time. Yeah, a, sh- a showman shaman, if you
2: will. Now, a woman named Bernice Williams claimed to have been held prisoner at the townhouse for a week without access to food. Ernestine Timmons claimed that Legrand had beat her with his fists and a stick. And a woman named Betty Jean Davis said that Legrand had threatened her with a gun in June of 1964.
1: Legrand was charged with kidnapping, assault and firearms possession, but the charges did not stick. In 1968, police accused him of snatching a 23-year-old woman from her home, assaulting and raping her before she managed to escape. Again, the charges did not stick.
2: That's a lot of... (laughs) Ra- like rapes and and crimes and charges that don't, don't stick. stick. Now, yeah. Maybe he was paying the police department. Yeah, that was.
1: There were rumors that he was uh bribing or had friends in the mm-hmm. police or something.
2: Had to have because yeah. I mean, also like it's the '60s. Who cares about women? Who cares right, about rape?
1: That's true. But
2: um, yeah, uh, so LeGrand owns several Brooklyn properties and a 58 acre property upstate in the Catskill region, dubbed LeGrand Acres uh welcome i would love to have a place named wendy acres or Froot loops acres uh keep those patreons coming so it was a former hotel and bungalow resort
1: with white clapboard buildings, and devernon Grand LeGrand brought his family there each summer. Mr. and Mrs. John Robert Wicks, who lived on an adjacent farm about 150 yards away from the LeGrand buildings, recalled, quote, he said he took care of orphans from the city and boys after they had been rehabilitated at Rockland State Hospital, unquote.
2: And they believed him.
1: They believed him, yeah.
2: Whoa, okay, so according to Mrs. Wicks, about 45 members of the Legrand family would arrive in June and stay throughout the summer. She often heard gunfire, crying children, and loud parties at night. She described groups of Legrand children wandering all over the countryside, begging and stealing food, rifling mailboxes, and on at least one occasion, openly stealing furniture from a house whose owners were away. That's a tough one to That's hide, pretty right? brazen. Yes, yeah. it is.
1: The legrand group would ride their dozen or so horses over nearby fields, trampling down crops on neighboring farms. No,
2: <laughs> come on, guys.
1: <laughs> the horses were left untended in the first winter of 1966, <gasps> and one starved to death no i know oh my over the years other horses starved or died of maltreatment and once a local workman was asked to use a bulldozer to dig a mass grave for a, <gasps> a group of the Legrand horses oh that's, my god that's awful
2: oh my god
1: <sighs> but complaints against the Legrand seldom led to any official action
2: what is up with that <laughs> uh so according to the wicks the legrand was always uh, was always polite to them and would express sympathy whenever they complained about the actions of the children quote he would always agree that the nuis- nuisances and thievery of the children was terrible and wrong unquote <laughs> now mrs wicks recalled that on one occasion legrand said that mr wicks should quote Take off his belt and give those naughty kids a licking,"
1: unquote. <laughs> oh jeez.
2: Yeah, I don't think that I don't think that would have solved
1: any no, of the problems. No, that's that's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> Over the course of two decades, more than 20 women disappeared from the Crown Heights townhouse. In September of 1963, Legrand's common-law wife, Anne Cerise, disappeared. Word is that Legrand had shot, beat, and murdered her, then dismembered her at the church.
2: Oh, me oh my. In May of 1970, Ernestine Timmins, who had borne six of Legrand's children, also disappeared. Reports are that Legrand beat and kicked her to death during a drunken rage and then dismembered her body. Hard to do if you're faded, though. Just saying.
1: the pieces... <laughs> Maybe he uh, he did it the next day or something. Oh, ah, slept it <laughs> off.
2: Okay, that makes sense. Now, the pieces were then placed in cellophane bags, but nobody knows what became of those bags, and she has never been found.
1: On February 9th, 1974, a motorist searching for an open service station instead found two bodies. What? down in the snow in the East Flatbush section of Brooklyn. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) The two men had apparently been shot somewhere else and their bodies dumped outside a manufacturing plant. The victims were identified as Howard Tippins, approximately 50, and Jeffrey Miranda, 25. Although an empty wallet was found, the police said they did not believe that it was a robbery.
2: Later, Legrand's stepson, Stephen Strong Legrand, and two of his brothers were tried and convicted of their murders. Miranda had at one time lived at the townhouse, and apparently he'd learned a few things and tried branching out on his own. News articles at the time described Miranda and Tippins as pimps.
1: This is the first point in the story where sex work is mentioned. The articles intimated that the women at the Legrand house were sex workers and that Miranda and Tippins had kidnapped, raped, and held for ransom one of Legrand's women who the press called a prostitute.
2: Uh, At the time, an acceptable word. Now we say sex workers. So Stephen, along with his brothers Aaron and Navatro Legrand talked to the men and convinced them that they could work something out if they met up. But instead, they shot Miranda and Tippins, execution style, and dump their bodies at the location by the manufacturing plant.
1: That same summer, a 15-year-old girl by the name of Elizabeth Brown was with some friends at Adventurer's Inn, an amusement park in Queens. According to her sister Kathy, quote, she had a good heart but was very angry, very belligerent. Our father was sick with cancer and dying. She was looking for stability. A kid like that attracts dirt bags like magnets, unquote.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, that's a vulnerable person in a vulnerable position. Oh, hey, uh, here comes a dirtbag now. (laughs) LeGrand rolled up in his chauffeur-driven cream-colored Cadillac and stepped out wearing a silk suit. Uh, I imagine alligator print shoes, no socks, (laughs) exuding wealth (laughs) and charm. At the time, LeGrand
1: was 50 years old. Yeah, fifty, and this girl's fifteen. Ah, yeah.
2: man, that's gross. That is really <laughs> gross.
1: No socks. <laughs> so that's the tipping point yeah, for you. Huh? No. no socks. Oh, gross.
2: I don't. You know, I think that the people, no socks, is like a prestige. Uh, you know, like your shoes are so fancy men with men with really fancy shoes and fancy suits. You, you know what I'm talking about? No socks, their ankles showing Andy, Andy Cohen was doing it the other day on watch what happens live on Bravo. And I've just seen it, uh, you know, uh, it just in my mind, it is like a, That's sign, a sign of
1: wealth, <laughs> a sign
2: of wealth, no socks,
1: a sign no of socks. success. Uh, but <laughs> (laughs) I mean, if you think about it, it's very gross. (laughs) It is. Well, um, maybe they don't need to wear socks because, you know, when you're poor, you only have like one or two pairs of shoes. You know, Mm. you can't wear no socks because they get all stinky. Right. Right. If you got a bunch of pairs of shoes, you can take turns, I guess. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. know (laughs) The mentality is somebody help us. Either. Tell us what what, give what us is the deal corner. with no socks? What's the deal with no socks? Yes. <laughs> so, fifteen-year-old Elizabeth Brown became another one of Legrand's girls, begging in nun garb by day and doing drugs and having sex with him at night. Mm. At some point, Elizabeth disappeared and was never heard from again.
2: On August twenty-second, nineteen seventy-four, Lagrand and his son Noconda—interesting names. Uh, yeah,
1: he had a lot of interesting. Names for his kids, yes. Well, he had a lot of them, yeah. Also,
2: uh, welcome to Cult Recorder. People, uh, you know, um, black people sometimes are criticized for having names that are too black,
1: um, creative,
2: ethnic, or too creative, yeah. But if you think about it, like a name like John or Beth. Uh, At one time, those are weird ass names. No. So, I mean, give us a minute. We've only been free
1: for a little while. Uh, Yeah. And and they're also white people names. So.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, So anyway, his son, Nakonda, raped a young woman at the townhouse. Some reports say that she was 17. Others say she was 20. In any case, both men were arrested. LeGron was also to stand trial for bribery.
1: Gladys Stewart, 18, who had married Legrand's 20-year-old stepson, Donald Stewart, had had enough of the family and wanted out. Mm. She had also secretly informed on Legrand during the bribery investigation, and she was scheduled to testify against him on the rape charge.
2: On October 3rd, 1975, Gladys told Donald that she was leaving for good, and he flew into a rage. Legrand intervened and detained both Stewart and her sister, Yvonne Rivera, 16, who were just who were just there visiting. He ordered the rest of the family downstairs to the first floor meeting room for a quote-unquote party. He demanded that they stay, quote, until I tell you to come out, unquote.
1: Men were posted at the doors of the room as guards, and no one was permitted to leave, not even to go to the bathroom. Mm. Over the next two hours, from 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m., LeGrand and his stepson, Stephen, kicked and beat the two teens. At one point, one of LeGrand's many daughters burst into the church's front room and said, quote, "'Daddy's stomping Gladys,' unquote."
2: Horrifying. The church handyman, Frank Holman, said he heard a woman scream and then led the group in hymns to keep them calm. They stayed there until 2.30 a.m. when Legrand came in and sent them all to bed. Weeks later, Legrand boasted he'd killed and dismembered the girls and had their remains incinerated at his upstate farm.
1: And Kathleen Kennedy overheard him say to another one of his daughters, quote, let me tell you something. You all remember Gladys. Daughter or no daughter, you'll join the bitch. You know what I do with bitches. I burn them. Unquote. Oh,
2: my God. Yikes. Yeah. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. So Gladys and Yvonne's mother, Laura Rivera, went to the townhouse looking for them. And Legrand told her that they'd gone to the property in the Catskills. She came back two weeks later and was told that they'd come back but had left with three men. She then went to the police and reported her two girls as missing.
1: Two insiders, Legrand's wife, Kathleen Kennedy, who had been forced to marry Legrand after he'd raped her, and the church handyman, Frank Holman, then came forward to say LeGrand had killed his daughter-in-law, Gladys, and her sister, Yvonne, in a fit of rage.
2: Kathleen told detectives, quote, my husband killed them, unquote, then explained that Frank Holman, quote, knows much more than I do. He helped get rid of the bodies, unquote. Kennedy and Holman told detectives that after the girls were murdered, they were dismembered in the Brooklyn church and their remains were transported to the property in the Catskills for disposal.
1: Frank Coleman told investigators that he was ordered to load two big garbage bags into his car and drive them to the farm. When he got there, something spilled from the bag. It was Yvonne Rivera's severed head. Santa Maria. So he dumped... (laughs) He dumped the jumble of body parts into an
2: old bathtub, doused them with paint thinner, and set the contents on fire. They burned for two hours and then put the ash remains in a garbage can, which he tossed into a lake near the camp. He later led investigators to where the bone fragments were submerged. Did you talk about, I, I'm. I, please forgive me, uh, the, the bathtub is in a museum. Oh, no, I didn't talk about that. Okay, so one of the sources I consulted, and I'm glad i bring this up because I have to, remember to put it in the footnotes uh the police officers have this police officer museum somewhere in new york and this bathtub is there oh my god police officers can sit in it if they want to i don't think they're supposed to yeah but one one officer i was listening to a podcast about this Case and he worked on the case, and he was like, Yeah, I, I said it. And uh, they were like, Did you take a picture? He was like, No, of course not. They, he was ordered to get out. But yeah, the bathtub is still there wow. and used for, oh, and the, this museum is it's only museum. available for police officers, for law oh enforcement. Oh my
1: gosh, that's not fair. I want to yeah,
2: <laughs> <wanna> see it. I know. Yeah, I want to see it. Uh, So anyway, sorry. Side note, go ahead.
1: Police found thousands of bones at La Grande Acres upstate, dredged from Lake Briscoe. This was before DNA technology, obviously, so prosecutors had to rely on the work of an anthropologist to help identify bones that likely came from the remains of the two sisters, Yvonne and Gladys. Some jewelry that belonged to Yvonne Rivera was also found in Lake Briscoe
2: disturbing material was found at the townhouse including two hacksaws I was wondering how he did all this <laughs> dismembering. dismembering. Thank you! Yeah. Two hacksaws, an axe, three bloodstained bedsheets, a twenty two caliber rifle, 11 shells, and a pair of scissors. Police believe that DeVernon LeGrand had murdered a dozen or more victims dumping some of them in Briscoe Lake. The list included three wives, two of LeGrand's stepchildren, the Stewart sisters, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Miranda, and Howard Tippins. So now we're going to get into the trial.
1: Hit it, Beth. Despite the fact that Gladys had disappeared before she could testify at the rape trial, Legrand and Nakanda were convicted of the rape that had taken place on August 22nd, 1974. Legrand was sentenced to 5 to 15 years in prison and Nakanda got 8 years. Then on March 12,
2: 1976, De Vernon Legrand was indicted for the murders of Gladys and Yvonne. In May of 1976, Legrand was indicted for a total of four counts of murder, including Gladys, Yvonne, and two of his wives, Anne Sorice and Ernestine Timmons. His stepson, 26-year-old Stephen Legrand, was also charged with murdering the Rivera sisters, plus two male victims, Howard Tippins and Jeffrey Miranda.
1: Frank Holman was granted immunity in return for his testimony. The def- The The defense did not deny the murders, but claimed that they were committed by Gladys Stewart's husband, which in some articles they say is Donald Stewart and in other articles they say is Daryl Stewart. But in any case, her husband.
2: According to the defense, Stewart committed the murders with the help of the prosecution's own witness, Frank Holman, which, by the way, I feel bad for Frank. Uh, Yeah. In support of these contentions, the defense called Stewart himself to testify.
1: Daryl or Donald Stewart testified without hesitation that he had, in fact, murdered and dismembered the two sisters and had done the same to all the other women as well. Whoa. And Stewart actually produced in court several bones, which he claimed to be the amputated fingers of one of his other victims.
2: Wow. Wow. But the jury did not buy it, and Legrand was convicted in the, of the 1976 murders of sisters Gladys Stewart and Yvonne Rivera, and with the 1970 murder of one of his wives,
1: Ernestine Timmons. Legrand and his stepson, Stephen, each got 25 years to life. On August 26, 1977, three of Ernestine Timmons' children, ages 11, 10, and 8, were removed from the church and put into the custody of their maternal grandmother. A 14-year-old sister of the three children had already been taken out of the church. Sergeant Roger Zimmerman, who helped remove the children, described them as quote-unquote terrified animals who had been beaten and locked in closets.
2: So now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, I'll tell you. Nakonda Legrand, who had been convicted of rape alongside his father, was released in 1984 and started calling himself Reverend Dr. Nakonda and the head of St. John's Pentecostal of Cronines.
1: No. Wow. It didn't go away. <laughs> Saverne and LeGrand died at Greenhaven Correctional Facility in 2006 at the age of 82. In LeGrand's absence, mother Vivian Sanicola, the head nun and LeGrand's some sort of wife, (laughs) kept St. John's Pentecostal of Crown Heights running, which still had no official accreditation. And in 2010, LeGrand's daughter-in-law, Melindia LeGrand, a.k.a. Sister Mindy, was caught, quote, Pulling the same old sister act in Little Italy, unquote.
2: Sister Act 2, you mean? Starring <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg and Lauren Hill.
1: And Melinda Legrand, apparently.
2: Wow! <laughs> Dreams do come true. Uh, so dressed in a nun's habit with a cr- back in the habit, look at that back in the habit. <laughs> N- so dressed in a nun's habit with a cross on her neck and a donation cup in her hand, she would tell passers by that she was raising money for quote children of St. Joseph's end quote and social programs run by St. Joseph's an, or- an orphanage and social programs that do not exist. <laughs>
1: According to New York's attorney general, quote, the social programs do not exist. Melindia Legrand is not a nun and St. Joseph's is not a functioning church. St. Joseph's is simply a front for fraudulent fundraising that is run by members of the Legrand family, which has a notorious history of crime in Brooklyn. Unquote. The attorney general said that St. Joseph's Church of Christ Incorporated was co-founded by Vivian Sanicola.
2: Although a fraudulent fundraising, so many things could uh, be charged with being fraudulent fundraisers. Am I right? Yeah. Uh, So some of Legrand's adult children fought with Vivian Senacola, claiming her name was forged on the deed of 222 Brooklyn Avenue. We're going to rock down to 222 (laughs) Brooklyn Avenue. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) and another house, and that her name was forged to sell them.
1: Vivian Santacola died on October ninth, 2016 in King Street, South Carolina, at the age of 82. Her obituary stated that, quote, She walked an average of 10 hours a day for 50 years just to ensure that light stayed on and the mortgage was paid, unquote. Uh, That's one way to put it, I guess. (laughs) Right. Also, really enjoy the shade you just threw, Beth. Nice work.
2: Uh, At the time of her death, she was living with a stepdaughter, Lazaria Prioliu. Prioliu filed a police report on October 21st, claiming that one of the oldest Legrand brothers showed up at an adult facility where Santa Cola spent
1: weekdays. She claimed that the brother took mother out in a van and that Santa Cola spent the next two nights too afraid to sleep. Prioliu said Santa Cola started foaming at the mouth on October 29th and then died.
2: The infini continued over the LeGrand house, which at the time was valued at more than $1.1 million. $1. Wow. Yeah. And possibly as much as $2 million. Yeah. But if you, well, now that we're past the pandemic and houses are priced 25% higher than normal, nine yeah. million. million. I don't know. <laughs> but if you look at Google Maps today, it appears that the building was has now been boarded up.
1: Some of the adult children who grew up in the house and lost their moms want to know the story behind the women's disappearances. Mm. Shayama Legrand, who last saw her mother when she was about four years old, said, quote, I just want to know what happened to my mom, unquote. Mm. Chayama said
2: that when she was 12, one of DeVernon LeGrand's older sons told Chayana that her, he'd helped her mother, Bernice Williams, escape, and that her mom said, quote, Whatever I do, wherever I go, just tell my girls that I love them. Unquote. But Chayama is haunted by doubt that her mother really escaped.
1: Yeah. And uh, she probably didn't. But that was really nice of her brother to to tell her that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. As an aside, while researching this topic, I stumbled across some forums where people are still talking about the Legrand family, not the ones from the time period that we covered, but the ones who still live in the area today.
2: Yeah, yeah, and uh, one of the sources, the, the, the police officers who got in the bathtub, uh, <laughs> they were talking about how the house is still is still there, and the um, Legrand family is still present in the area, and there are still nuns doing this same scam. Stuff,
1: yeah. yeah.
2: so now we're going to get into what we think made LeGrand snap and our takeaways. What do you got for us,
1: Beth? What are your thoughts? Tell us. Well, obviously some narcissism was involved. Hello, somebody. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> he was apparently very charming. I mm-hmm. mean that even that police officer liked him. So yeah, yeah. But uh, he did not appear to have any empathy. No. Yeah. And the religion aspect I found really interesting. It seems like he saw religion as bogus and uh, just a way to manipulate people like psychopaths do. Or he really believed it. The religion? No, I don't think he did. No? Okay. Mm Mm-mm uh mm. because he was not very religious <laughs> just yeah. though his behavior was uh atrocious so was, i don't indeed. i don't think he really believed it i think he saw it as uh something that other people foolishly believed in and that he could use to manipulate them mm. okay okay anyway i don't okay. know
2: Okay, I see, I see just, you and your takeaways over there. okay.
1: Just my opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a lot of articles describe this as a cult, but yeah. I don't think it was a cult so much as just a scam. Mm. Well, what's and, the difference? Oh well, because of the religion, i don't I really don't think there was a lot of religion involved
2: Uh uh-huh got you okay okay Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. legrand learned his tricks early on from the other preacher Uh, he just copied him Uh but uh he was worse he kept Mm -hmm. all the money i mean i thought the women were were doing pretty good in and the other church or they only had to give the church like two dollars and fifty cents a day and they got to keep all the rest of it but right right legrand kept all the money Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. abused and and even murdered his followers and he Mm -hmm treated the children abominably yep very very badly (laughs) yes terribly Uh uh-huh yeah and he seemed to use tactics more akin to like what pimps use Yes. Rather than yes. what preachers use. I mean, he pres- presented himself like a preacher, but his behavior, which included lots of sex, drugs, and alcohol, was nothing preacher like. And mm. the, the women had to have seen that almost right away. So he had to use these like pimp tactics to keep them there, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And this case, I, I thought it was mind blowing. Whoa, mind-blowing. Okay. Because I never heard of it before. Yeah. And keeping track of everything that happened and all of his wives and crimes uh, was really difficult. And putting together, like, a script to kind of lay it out. Like, Jesus Christ, so much happened. Yeah. (laughs) And I can't believe I never heard of this guy before. Um, I agree.
2: I agree. uh,
1: We all know why. Yes,
2: it starts with an R, ends with an a A.ism, <laughs> everybody. Um, well, yeah, I, I, I agree and disagree. I think okay, okay. it takes a special personality to become a, a preacher. And um, one thing I think was interesting is is the preacher aspect, and. um, you know black people are always in this pursuit of black excellence as a sort of a way out or a way to level up or be acceptable and safe in dominant society aka white society right and there are certain professions that are safe bets like i mean to get money (laughs) dope boys uh ballers entertainers and clergymen now Um, stop stop right there what's a baller like a basketball player oh, uh, oh yeah, okay, yeah okay. Or a ra- I mean a rapper or i be I mean no nobody, nobody's ever gonna be a Beyonce but like somebody like that right okay, okay. in the public eye who makes a lot of money and right, clergyman okay. is is not unlike those other things right um and I grew up in a Pentecostal cho- church and the preacher Always had the nicest cars, the goldest of change, fur (laughs) coats. His wife always had fur coats. Her hair was always done. And I was, I just was always like, man. Woo. And he was charming, charming. Um, And I think that there are a lot of similarities between preachers and pimps. Like there's a Venn diagram of those two things (laughs) and they overlap a lot. (laughs) And again, you have to be charming. Pimps are very, very smart and excellent manipulators and preachers can be too. Not all preachers are good. So um, he might not have been preacher like, or Chris Christian Christian like <laughs> in that he, he wasn't he engaged. Just not good. <laughs> yeah, it was he was terrible. <laughs> he engaged like there. There are these things called the Ten Commandments, and he broke. <laughs> all Every of them, single one of them. Oh, but, but in but I I really think in his mind he believed that he was a faithful man of God which is which is scary right yeah very it scary makes it, it makes it a lot worse yeah yeah <laughs> and um You know, I didn't I I don't know much about the mob. I don't give a fuck about the mob because they're all white and I have no relation to them. But I this story to me sounded like a crime family. Yeah. Right. But the media and entertainment and law enforcement didn't characterize them that way because it was black people run by a black man. So anyway, those are my thoughts. So now we're going to get to how. how, But please let us know what y'all think. As always. Yeah. Uh, Phone number is (laughs) 602-935-6294. Drop something
1: for us. Yeah,
2: let us know. So uh, now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victim. Victims, it's just learning from other people's experiences.
2: So this is from our main man, Marcus. Uh, yeah. And it was just a suggestion. There are these microchip manicures. Now, according to CNN.com, there's a beauty salon in Dubai. Oh, where, so you have we to can go just, to, just to hop, Dubai skip to and jump away. <laughs> yeah, my bank, my bank account will allow it. Not. Uh, but it, <laughs> it's giving new meaning to the phrase chipped nails. And Lenore Beauty Lounge is offering tiny microchips for customers fingernails and the chips have information embedded in them that allows Ooh. it to be used as a digital business card wow. pass or information with your in- instagram handle but it can also be a way to track you if you get kidnapped or something like that so the whole right, thing right. that the microchip will eventually have other uses in the future um but anyway i thought it was a neat idea yeah that
1: is a neat idea but
2: for reels related to the story there was this human trafficking element to this, right? Via right. the exploitation of vulnerable women and femmes and people. Right. And imagine if somebody had called an authority other than the police or, you know, these women. Uh, the, the, I'm thinking of one of the women who was um, used to testify against Lagrand, And yeah. he found out and, and, and she died. Killed her. So, yeah. yeah so if, if maybe an authority other than the police had been called or involved and um, sought safety and help um, rather than, you know, punitive measures for, for these women for solicitation or whatever. So National Human Trafficking has a hotline. Their hotline number is one eight eight eight. 373 7888, or you can text 233 733 if you see something, say something with regard to suspected human trafficking, or if you are involved in that somehow and need help or know somebody who needs resources or assistance. So awesome. Okay, shout out time. Now we're going to move on to the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any true crime goodies or any content by or about any marginalized, othered, or underrepresented groups of folks. I just wanted to shout out if you have not already seen Eliza Matsanuga documentary on Netflix. It is a true crime goodie. I loved it. Oh my God, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Uh, And also The Vanishing of Harry Pace is a true crime investigative journalism podcast about Harry Pace, who is a white passing black guy who started America's... Uh, First, black owned record company. And there's no, there's like no recordings or video of him, just a lot of stories about him in in the zeitgeist. And then last one, The Anti Trans Hate Machine, a plot against equality is a podcast about um, the hundreds of anti trans. Uh, trans legislation that has popped up in recent years um and it just talks it interviews people it talks to legislators or legislators and 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 politicians and all kinds of stuff it's really really interesting and a, a good um a- education for all of us on trans cool. st-
1: issues yeah thank you what do you got i wanted to shout out a podcast called you're wrong about oh i love that one do you <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah so mike who's a gay man and Sarah, I think they're both white, but uh-huh. uh, they're journalists obsessed with the past. Yes, and every week they reconsider an event, person, or phenomenon that's been miscast in the public imagination. And they have like I don't know how many episodes about the O.J. Simpson trial. It's uh, like listen
2: to all of lot. them a lot. Yeah, me too. A lot, a lot. <laughs> the Princess Diana episode. I mean, every, everything you can imagine. They get deep down dirty into it, and you learn yeah. so much. It's something they're. Good
1: really smart and they're uh-huh. they're entertaining and mm-hmm. funny. So uh yeah. Agreed.
2: So one more time, that's uh, Eliza Matsnuga documentary on Netflix, The Vanishing of Harry Pace podcast, anywhere you get your podcast, The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality podcast, and You're Wrong About podcast. Now, this has been so
1: wonderful, but that's all for today. In the meantime, Beth, where
2: can the people find us?
1: Our website is FruitLoopsPod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook Facebook. facebook we are also on twitter and instagram at fruit loops pod and links to our sources will be in our footnotes if you want to support the show you can send us a donation on the cash app just google fruit loops pod cash app or you can become a monthly patron through Podbean. this will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting there's no minimum and no commitment even a dollar would help and as always we have merch for sale on our website
2: so, so true. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. OhioMysteries.com Come play with us.